Michelle Joy Phelps, and I'm joined now with my good pal, David Hay. David, it's great to, uh, to have you on my screen right now. <laughs> great, great to see you looking as wonderful as ever. You know, hearing the sad news, you've been in hospital a couple of weeks back, but you look back and better than ever. <laughs> Thank you. I'm so grateful. You know what? It's, it's crazy because that experience has literally changed me coming out of it only because number one I, I never really i guess you could say i took for granted just being able to have people around you so it's yeah. it's it's insane like looking back and thinking about how terrible it was to go through all of that and have no help whatsoever just because of the circumstances no one could be around someone who's sick at the moment so you can isolate you can isolation you was yeah. in isolation, so you couldn't see anyone. You was like in your own little bed with your <laughs> curtain. And, um. Yeah. So it was it was a, a hell of an experience. But 20 days later, I, or after 20 days of being sick, I am finally better. So I'm very happy. <laughs> what was what was it? What was it that you you had? What was the? What was um, the, the doctor said because I I. I I got admitted into the hospital 11 days after being sick. So at this point, I had uh, early stages of pneumonia, an infection in my lungs, and uh, just, you know, the whole, the whole thing, the whole shebang. So I tested negative for the virus, but the doctor did say to me, because you came in on day 11. It might have been out of your system. That, uh, you, might have been out of your system maybe. already. Was it the antibody test I did as well? Was it just the positive or negative? Just the positive or negative. So here, yes. now that I'm back in the States, I do plan to take the antibody test. And mm -hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if I did, because he did say, yeah. you know. A bit cronerish. With the cronerish vibe you had about you. <laughs> it was just like, you know, you had all the symptoms and your blood work came back irregular. It just seems like I wouldn't put it past the idea that maybe you did. But I'm going to roll with the fact that I didn't because yeah. the test said negative, so I'm not going to sit here and... So the good news is you're probably susceptible to getting it again. So um, <laughs> I don't know. I'd, I'd, I'd prefer to have had it. Yeah. So I know I'm not going to get it again. Yeah, but, I'm hearing, but I'm hearing people are getting it twice now. I don't know. I mean, I, I've seen doctors on television saying, like, there's no actual, like, I guess apparently that's happening in China. There's no, there's no cases out here that someone's caught it twice. I don't know. Who knows? But uh, hopefully that's not the case. And hopefully, you know, I, I would have liked to have thought that maybe I did have it. That way I don't put my parents in any danger. Yeah, cool, um, because cool. I'm the one going out doing the shopping and whatnot. So, but anyways, you know what? Thank you, number one, for you and your team for checking up on me because that really meant a lot to me. No in the hospital, getting messages from you guys, um, sending prayers my way. So, thank you for that. But, um, David, I'm curious, Captain Haymaker, huh? <laughs> yeah, Captain Haymaker, my new, uh, my new nickname. It was, uh, what did you think? Did you watch the documentary? Yes, I did. Now, Were I you? have several questions because... Did you like it? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, I thought it was interesting because you could see your transition throughout the documentary of, you know, one minute you're yawning and you, you could see just how uninterested you were from the start. And maybe not, you know what, maybe not uninterested, but it just didn't capture your attention the way maybe 
something physical like boxing does, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. if you're not really understanding something, it, it, it can come off like you're bored, but you're just not grabbing it. I, I was, but just in case anyone listens to this thinking, what the hell are you talking about? I did, there's a documentary called David and Goliath, which is yeah. out now on Amazon Prime. Tune in, it's a fun documentary. I'll be learning from a complete novice poker player. I never didn't know the rules to going into the biggest poker tournaments all over the world. And uh, what, what, what Michelle's saying is, when I first started learning how to play, it was very difficult and I wasn't that interested. And the, the way I was learning wasn't quite, uh, gripping me and I had to find a way to learn to play poker, the haymaker, the <laughs> captain haymaker, which um, was going all over to the, the Philippines. When you look back on the documentary, right? When you rewatched it, mm. did you have a good laugh? Because I imagined you laughing when yeah. you saw the, the coaches were quite frustrated with you. <laughs> I did, yeah, I did. It was quite, it was quite funny. The fact that, you know, they were lovely. The coaches were nice. All they wanted to do was try and get, they were trying to get their knowledge into my head and they just didn't know how to do it. You know, they're not, they're not, they're not teachers. They're poker players. They're poker professionals. They're Grosvenor poker professionals. So they play poker. They play poker for years and years and years. They've won millions and millions. And they're trying to teach someone who's an ex-boxer how to play poker. And they just wasn't, they, they were just trying to sit me down in a classroom trying to say, this means this, trying to give me books to read. I'm like, oh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not that guy. That's not how I, that's not how I do things. But so Oddly kind of... even said that, Oddly even said that you're, you're not necessarily someone who can just like sit in a class and like learn from a book. You have to sort of be taught. You have to, you're like the hands-on experience type of exactly. guy. Exactly. I need to feel it. I need to touch it, taste it. I need to get, get my personality out. You know, you, I need to feel the vibe. I need to get it wrong. I need to get it wrong multiple times to realize how to get it right. You need to go through the wrong doors until you go through the right door. And you think, okay, that's the right door. I'm going to keep going through this one. And that's how we kind of did it. So I called Audley Harrison, a good friend of mine, former, former foe and now family, um, lives, in, lives in LA also. And he, he taught me poker the way it could comfortably, comfortably, comfortably be digested. And his idea was, Let's get off the grid. You, you know, you've been in London. You, you got your Derek Chisora's having fights. You got your, your your gym. You got this, that. You got your family. All these different bits and pieces keeping you busy. You, when you can't learn something new, when you've got so much stuff going on, we need to take you away. And I said, where are we going to go? He went, don't worry about that. I'll, I'll, I'll sort it out. So he took me to an island. <laughs> yeah, got to fly to the Philippines. I think first you got to go to Turkey. Change in Turkey. Go to. The Philippines and go from so from Manila from Manila you need to get another flight to another island called El Nido and from El Nido you need to take a, a boat from there for another oh 40 God. minutes to <laughs> a little island it's honestly you know when you land on the island you have to take a, a uh, you have to take a, a car ride a little, a little jeep ride through this little shanty town to get to a port and from the port you need to get a boat but when you got oh to Kauai Island when you got to Kauai Island, it, it was, there was no phone signal, there was no distractions, it was just beautiful. All we did is just zoned into the, there was nothing else to do other than play poker and just be in a beautiful environment. And we just nailed it nonstop, nonstop, poker, 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 poker. For days, it was, it was absolutely amazing. I finally grasped it. I went straight from there to the world, um, to the Asian poker tour, all the best poker players from all over Asia 
of there, the Chinese, Japanese, some of the best players in the world, you know, and I, and I cashed, I won some dough. And, and it's because the teaching of Audley Harrison, I'm quite a good student if the teacher knows what he's doing. Mm -hmm. And he brought the best out of me, you know, and he only he was only with me for literally a matter of days. And he took me from like, not knowing what the hell I was doing to winning big money in big, big tournaments. Had you ever had a real interest in poker before? Because you know, it no, gets no, easier. None. When you actually I'm, like something? No, I'm not a card. I'm not a card game guy. I don't play cards. It's not my thing. I remember playing Snap when I was a little kid, and that was it. I never, never, never played poker. I've watched um, a Maverick. I remember watching Maverick, and you've seen these poker, these uh, movies where they where they have poker played in it. But Ocean's Eleven. I remember watching that little poker game in the beginning, Clooney and Bradford. But I don't. I didn't know what they were doing. Then I. Then when I found out about it, I really took it. To, really took it took it in and I love, I love poker now. I love tournament style poker where you, where everyone has the same amount of chips, same amount of money, everyone has the same buy-in. So no one's, just because one person's got a billion and the other person's got 10 grand, it doesn't make any difference. They're still playing the same. It's all about the skill. And that's what I liked about it. There's a level playing field and um, you just got to go out there and just, you got you know, like 10,000 people entered this, this tournament in Coventry called Goliath. Um, and, uh, you know, Grove the Casino, really really gave me all the possible uh, infrastructure to give to get poker into my brain and i can't get it out i dream about poker now which which was mentally harder to you know uh train for would, would you say poker or boxing poker without a doubt boxing uh, came natural to me after i was probably 15 years old it was very natural to me you know I could do anything I wanted to do I could you know I had that knockout punch so when if when things were getting a bit rough I could always pull it out mm -hmm. but it doesn't work in poker I tried to sort of half intimidate people across the table and it didn't work you know I tried all the, the boxing antics it doesn't work so I had to learn a whole new way and to learn poker you need to you need to get you, you need to get your ass kicked plenty so I was going playing as many tournaments all, all over the world as possible and uh, it was it was tough, but once I got it, once I went to the Philippines, it's like all of a sudden I remember I remember walking into this tournament again. I'm going to cash in this tournament. And the, the chance of me cashing with the, the limited experience I've got is like zero point whatever. But I I did it, you know. And then I kept winning. And next thing you know, things things started to materialize. I started getting a bit of a aura around me. And when I was sitting at the tables. I could control the tables. I could control the tables. I was confidence now. Confidence, and it wasn't false confidence. It was real confidence. You know, I went into a tournament early doors when I first thought I knew what I was doing, and you know, I didn't last. You know, in an all-day tournament, I was out in ten minutes. You know, a few hands, I was out. And um, it's it's a, it's a it's a great it's a great game, and um, it's it's fun. I, I enjoy. I've enjoyed it. So we know how they differ, but. In what ways are poker and boxing alike? Like it's the, men, it's, the men, it's the men, it's the it's the mental endurance. That's the bit I like. You know, if you're going to go deep into a tournament, you're there for days. You know, you're there for you know twelve hours a day, you know, day in day out, and you need you. All it takes is one lapse of concentration, one calling someone's all in, and you're out just like that. Just one not concentrating on what someone hand, what someone did when they were on the big blind before and the way they play and how many chips they've got, how many chips you've got, where you're sitting. There's a million different things to process. Yeah. And if your mind wanders off and you start thinking about something or you're looking in your phone or something, 
you're 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 missing valuable information that's happening and you tend to do that when you're mentally not focused and mentally not don't have the mental endurance so I needed to build my mental endurance. And to do that, you need to eat healthy. You need to make sure you're getting your sleep. You need to make sure you're physically fit. So, I'm, so I remember sitting around a table, and when I see someone yawning or getting tired or like back's aching, I'm like, ah, he's feeling the pace. I know I can, I can see the people. And you've learned that because you, you saw a doctor. Yeah. You saw a memory coach. Mm. You, you even saw an acting coach. Like you were able to kind of, especially through the acting like able to know like okay when they're doing this or when they're doing that um you can kind of read through the cards per se exactly so the cards are only so only so important you then yeah. need to, you're playing the people you you play the person you play the cards there's so many different different ways you can go about it but to look to look in someone's eyes and to kind of soul read their soul it, it takes out i'm i'm not there yet i'm i'm getting there slowly slowly but the more you play the better you get and when it when you have these all-in situations and you believe you've you, you've got someone beaten so but surely you end up winning more and more of these all-in situations and that's what i found i found the more i concentrated the more i was winning the pots and it was just a, it was a simple matter of how much can you mentally hold it together when you're tired when you're when you're hungry when you need to go to the toilet you can't get up to you, you want to go to the toilet and you think okay ignore that let me just focus on this and you know you've got 45 minutes before the next break you know you know then sometimes i remember i got up at one stage in a tournament where every my, my brain just went so i was like okay up you get just get away let's not make any decision miss a miss a few hands go outside get yourself together and come back and i had a little pep talk with audley at that time because he flew over to goliath the big tournament in coventry um to to give me support and it's amazing how you how although poker is an individual thing you definitely need like a mentor or you need someone who really knows what he's doing to you know because even during the game i'll be after the, each game i'll message him and tell him what happened in the scenario in a situation and he'll go oh that was good play on well you got away with it this time but you know the odds say that was the wrong thing to do so next time maybe play the odds so you know just yeah. having someone an, an objective guy who knows the sport inside the sport i say the game inside out and um it, it definitely it's definitely useful tell us something that didn't air uh what, did, what, did, what didn't air was when i was in the world series of poker um the, all the cameras were rolling and I, I i didn't cash i got i got knocked out of the world series tournament and I was really frustrated. Audley was there as well. You see that on the dock. I'm like, I want to go back. And he said, no, don't go back. Come back tomorrow. But the cameras weren't rolling tomorrow. The cameras were only rolling that day. So yeah. I was like, I'm like, the cameras are rolling. I was like, I want to go and do it now. I know I can, I know I can cash in this tournament. Said, no, don't worry. Walk away. Come back tomorrow. And I'm like, but you're not going to film it tomorrow. Went, it doesn't matter. It's not about filming anything. It's about you learning. If you go back today, you're going to lose anyway. Take your time. No one's going to be filming tomorrow. Just go back and go back and do it. And that's exactly what I did. I went back with the mindset and I cashed. I think I came 28th um, in that tournament. So I was like, all right, and I, and I, and I cashed. And I've got, I've got that on my, I've got that footage, but it wasn't used in the documentaries. I wish it was because every, every tournament Audley took me to, I cashed. And that for someone who's a complete novice, I went to World Series of Poker and cashed, Asian Poker Tour and cashed, and Coventry Goliath and cashed. Two of the big, three of the biggest tournaments in the world. And I, and, I, and, I, and I cashed, I won money in every single one of them when I, I came to like 0.1% of the field. So I'm like, okay, that's, that's, uh, 
that's not bad. That's not bad, you know. So I tell all these gonna all these, I think all these gonna be a, a pro poker coach after this. Once people realize how good he is after this, that's all he's, he's gonna be a poker coach now. But he also might have understood how to sort of take that concentration, that attention you normally give to like a, a combat sport. Yeah. And yeah, tune yeah, yeah. in mentally into this, you know, and it takes one to know one. Yeah, without a doubt. The fact, yeah, he's won, he's won an Olympic gold medal. He's the British Commonwealth European heavyweight champion. He missed out on the heavyweight title because he fought me. And, um, <laughs> but he's achieved everything he's ever, he's ever wanted in the boxing ring, you know, other than becoming heavyweight champion of the world. Um, no mean feat. And um, he understands the mindset of an athlete, of a fighter. And um, that's definitely an advantage with him being so good yeah. at poker. Um, but, you know, it's... Uh, it's, it's I'm like, I, can't, I can't wait till the casinos open so I can go back and play some more tournaments. Yeah. Fans, it's Michelle Joy Phelps. If you haven't already subscribed to my YouTube channel, make sure you go ahead and do so by clicking this icon right here and hit the bell button so you can get notified every time we upload a new video. And we also have a free app available on iTunes and Google Play. So make sure you go ahead and download that. Bye, fight fans. Was there something I was intending on asking? But obviously, you mentioned that you know you're you're really good at controlling the distance and what have you. A lot of people always remember the Josh Warrington fight. For me, that that was one of the best fights I've seen. Though, but that was just yourself and Josh just going at it for twelve rounds. It was relentless. Just to reflect on that, why do you think that he just couldn't quite do what you're mentioning now against Josh? Well, I got it wrong. I, I got I got hurt in the first round, um, and. I was hurt in the second round, I think probably in the third round as well. Um, going out for the fourth round, I probably felt like I'd done maybe 10 already. Um, it took a lot to, to, to continue and, and carry on and, and get through them rounds. Um, and that was it really. I just couldn't get up on my toes. I had a nasty bite on my thigh with a, had a huge bruising. Um, on my thigh, I think it might have happened in the first round, just in an exchange, obviously accidental, but I had a bit of a dead leg. Um, and I just, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it on the night. And I think that the main issue for me in that fight was I seriously underestimated Josh Warrington's punching power. I didn't underestimate him as a fighter. I knew it was going to be a difficult, grueling fight, and he's very fit and very strong um, and very determined. But I, I, I underestimated his punching power. And if you watch how I went out into the first round, I was just way too relaxed. Way, way, way too relaxed. And it was like a fighter. I went out as a fighter who thought that this guy can't hurt me. Um, and, and that's what I thought. And, and he, I got it wrong. And after that, the kind of my game plan, which was the move, just went out the window. What can I can do? It's interesting you mentioned Josh's power because he, you know, his record wouldn't suggest that he's, you know, he's not necessarily a knockout artist. What was it like when he first did start to land on you in that first round when he did knock you? Well, that's that's that was why I didn't. His record doesn't suggest, like you said, that he is a puncher. And I've been in with some big punchers, and I've I've sparred a lot of big guys in, in my career as well. Um, and I've been hit hard and. Um, his record didn't suggest to me that he's going to be able to hurt me. Um, and that was just, that was just me overlooking and, and I, I just made a, I made a mistake really. Um, 
but I, I, I promise you, I promise you all, like I have never been hit that hard in a fight in my life when I get hit in the first round. Um, and I have been in with big punchers. Um, Although I was dropped against Alejandro Gonzalez twice in the first round, they were kind of flash and I was dropped down and up and it was fine. My head was clear like pretty instantly. The Warrington shots took a lot out of me and took a lot for me to recover properly. Um, he's, a, he's a puncher and he doesn't get the credit for it. Um, again, his record doesn't suggest he's a puncher, but I think that uh, if you make a mistake after not listening to me and I'm going to fight with him in the future and think that he can't punch. Obviously, I know it's not something that you'll be considering for this moment in time. You're both going down different routes. Well, after the fight, you know, both of you said maybe if you got another world title of your own and Josh Deladdy's a potential unification fight could, could happen once again down the line or if Josh was to move up or you was to move back down with that world title. Is that something you're still interested in? A rematch with Josh Warrington? Of course, I just want to be involved in big fights, and, and that would be a, a big fight. So, um, but at this stage of my career, it's one fight at a time. Um, there's there's fighters that I would like to get in, in the ring with. Um, Jamel Herring is the guy on my mind at the minute, but you know, Santa Cruz, um, I love that fight. I'd love the Warrington fight again. Um, but it's one fight at a time at this stage of my career, and Jamel Herring is the guy that. Um, it's, it's on my mind at the minute, even though the fight isn't officially done. Just just to go back to that in the current scenario, then you mentioned Leo Santa Cruz. He obviously, last time I saw you was in Las Vegas the week before uh, Ortiz Waldo, Waldo Ortiz too, I should say. Uh, Leo Santa Cruz fought on that card, winning the world title, up at Super Featherweight, winning the WBA title. Firstly, what was your thoughts on his victory over Miguel Flores? It wasn't great. It wasn't a great performance. A bit of a Bit of a down squib. It wasn't a brilliant fight. Um, and the thing is, you look at Leo Santa Cruz, he, he can call himself a four-way world champion. Um, he just won his fourth division um, against Miguel Flores, who was a featherweight moving up. I, I don't know how he gets away with that. How do you get away with fighting another featherweight in a different weight division and becoming a super featherweight champion? Doesn't make, make sense to me, but he does get away with it. Um, I think he's been well looked after. Um, he had the fight with me thinking that he was going to win that fight because they'd seen me being dropped by Alejandro Gonzalez. I beat him. Then he beat me in the rematch and he did beat me fair and square. But the third fight should have happened. But his team, uh, they just protect him and they, they, they didn't want it to happen. And it's a shame. Um, it's a shame for boxing fans. It's a shame for myself. And a shame for... Leo as well, I suppose, a bit more of a blotch on his record than me. The, the third fight never happened um, because everyone knows that, that I've, I've tried my best to make that happen. I would have traveled to LA for that fight to happen, but hey-ho, um, I, I didn't ever see it happen. Obviously, I'm sure you know, a lot of people would still be very interested to see yourself and Leo have that trilogy fight. Over the past couple of years, you know, since since you both had your last bout against each other, have you had any discussions at all? Is it maybe, say, if you was to face Jamal, say, if he was victorious and you had a WBO title, would a unification fight be possible? No, no, I don't, I don't know. I suppose it, it would be possible, but it just it, it's just something that I don't think will ever happen anymore. So I'm really kind of not not thinking about it that. That much, like I've seen him about it. Different fights, the Wilder Ortiz fight. I've seen him um, playing. Uh, he's playing poker at a table. 
I went down and just said hello and you know try to get a conversation. He's like hello and then turns away. He doesn't want to speak to you. So it's like um, he doesn't want the fight. It's a shame to hear that, Carl. But obviously, just to move away from that, then and just get your thoughts on a few other things in the boxing world. There's a lot of talk at the minute about how the heavyweight division kind of rests. Who do you kind of class at the minute as the number one, AJ or Fury? I think, um, I think that although AJ has the majority of the belts, um, I think you have to put Fury as number one. Um, because he beat Wilder. Um, I think that it is probably the Fury-Wilder win. I think he beat him twice. Everyone thought he beat him twice. But them wins were better than any wins that the other two have had. So any, like, they were better than AJ Klitschko. They were better than Fury Klitschko. Um, I think that was the best win, um, and you have to have, for that reason, you would have Fury as number one. How do you think about between AJ and Fury would play out an undisputed battle? Uh, well, I think it would be a great fight. I, I really do. Um, I see a lot of people just saying Fury wins easy because of his last performance and, and, and because AJ lost the uh, Ruiz and stuff. Um, I don't necessarily see it like that. I think it would be a brilliant fight. I think it's a fight that would that would probably sell Wembley twice over um, and very quickly as well. Huge fight, but I would favour Fury in the fight, but I wouldn't be saying that with any sort of um, certainty. Just move away from the heavyweights as well. Just get your thoughts on the middleweight division. Canelo Billy Joe Saunders was very close to being formally announced until lockdown and isolation and everything came into play. Depending on how that plays, obviously Billy Joe Saunders having his license suspended. But if that fight was to happen in the future, how do you think that one would, would work or play out? It's another great fight. Um, it's a fight that I would like to see. Um, I think that Billy Joe, with his style and, and how he fights, um, has the attributes to give Canelo trouble. Um, I think it'd be a very, very interesting fight. But I'd, I'd still favour Canelo in that fight. I think Canelo was an amazing fighter. He finds ways to beat fighters. Um, he can adapt in different the different styles. He can even adapt kind of mid-fight. Um, and unless it's very, very way in Billy Joe's favour. Um, he's not going to win it. Um, I think that Canelo gets any sort of round as close to go to Canelo. That's probably not, it's not fair, but that's the way it is. Um, and yeah, it would be a great fight. I would love, I would love to see that fight, but I, I, I can't see Canelo. Another name that was mentioned for Canelo is Callum Smith. How do you think Callum would have fared if he had got the fight against Canelo? See, I was thinking that there was no way that that um, Canelo would have picked Callum Smith to fight. I thought that he was all wrong with him because of the size difference and um, just his natural attributes. Like he's huge for the weight, and I, I just thought that it would be a, a step too far for Canelo in terms of size. But watching watching Callum Smith against John Raider. 
not a lot of people were impressed. That was it was an off night. It was it was the performance that we were expecting from Colin Smith. I would think that Canelo might have been looking at that fight and licking his lips, thinking that a shorter guy can do this to him. Um, and let's not, you know, kid ourselves. John Ryder isn't the fighter that Canelo is. Um, I think that you'd asked me that a year ago. I thought that I thought I, I think I probably would have said Colin Smith beats Canelo. Um, I think Colin Smith's better than the Ryder performance, but I think that it's hard for anyone to beat Canelo. Really Another thought that has been discussed and come up recently, Crawford Brook. How do you think that one would play out? Um, Terence Crawford against Kell Brook. Uh, that's, uh, that's at this stage, you know, a few years ago, you might have given Brook a chance. Right now, you know, I, I really like Kell Brook, but I want to be honest. And I think that Crawford beats him, and he beats him easily. I think Terence Crawford is pound for pound up there, one of the number one. Some people have him as number one pound for pound on the planet. Um, he's certainly in the top five, if not top three. Um, I don't even think it's a competitive fight. Carl, before I do let you go, then, um, just a final word on, on like, not the camp situation, but how, how is everybody else in amongst Jamie Moore's team and everybody who you train with? We're, we're all right. I suppose we're all on a WhatsApp group. Everyone keeps in touch with each other. and um, Everyone seems okay. Everyone seems really getting on with things. and um, look, No one's getting this easy either, really. Um, but... We're just making the most out of it and hopefully things kind of pass by in the near future and, and at some point this will all be a distant memory and, and, and people will be um, people will be talking about it as the terrible time that it was, but I think we're, we're all doing okay. That's good to hear, Carl. Before I do let you go then, what would you like to say to everybody who tunes in to watch our interview? Um, never know what to say when I get asked this. Um, <laughs> Maybe keep your ears peeled. Hopefully, um, a fight with Jamel Herring will be announced very short, shortly after this coronavirus pandemic has passed. And make sure you head to Boxing Social's YouTube channel to watch Cole's naked weigh-in, which has now turned over a million views. We want the numbers up. I want to hit two million. I'm sure we, we can manage that, Carl. But I appreciate your time as always. Stay safe and I'll hopefully see you soon to go out to do an interview in person. Uh, enjoy the rest of your time with your family and I'll speak to you soon. Thanks for being to Boxing Social. Thank you. I'd say you got the biggest headline of the week. Like, this big baby Miller talking about Anthony Joshua, he said it to you. I'll let you tell us uh, what you heard in that interview. Yeah, so basically I just asked Jarrell, I'm like, you know, had the outcome been, or had he got the fight, not been popped for a failing drug test and, and went through with it, would the outcome still be the same? And he said, yeah, he said that he would have stopped Joshua and he said that he would have put him in a casket. Now, as you know, um, words like that don't 
they're not taken too well in, in our industry or in general. Uh, but we know that there's been other fighters in the past, like Deontay Wilder, who mentioned uh, a body on his record. And, you know, it didn't sit too well. A lot of people had a lot to say about it. I have a lot to say about it. When Deontay Wilder said that to me, I every time I talk to him, like challenge him, like, hey, does that really look like me? You know what happened to body on your record? record? It literally means the death of your opponent. Is that what boxing is all about? Obviously, I don't think it is. Most fans don't receive it that way. But every time someone says something like that, we look at it as though it's the first time we've heard it. Or as though it's so egregious, and it is egregious that uh, this person should be uh, scorned for it and punished for it. And I just forever—that's that's that's sort of where I'm confused. This has been ha this is not new. Talk, Talk like, like this, this is, is not, not new in boxing. boxing. It's, it's not, not new, new, but I think, think what, what is new is our appreciation of just how, how vile it is, right? right? How, how unnecessary it is, and in this past year. With, with the, the amount, amount of fighters, fighters that, that we've witnessed die, die in our sport. Yeah. I mean, it has, it's, it's a gladiator sport. sport. You're, You're being hit to the head for a living. You're not going, going and delivering FedEx packages. It, it is, is a dangerous sport. sport. We, we know, know that. And, and of, of course, we have an appreciation for it. My, my question is, why is it that back when, in the Mike Tyson era, why is it okay? Or why is it not okay? I don't know. Was it not okay? Or maybe it's just social media is new in our generation, so people have more of an outlet to voice their opinion? Or were people more okay with that sort of talk then? I'm just confused at what point that changed because people love Mike Tyson, but Mike Tyson has said a lot of really crazy things. Mike Tyson is going to eat your children. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I would rather you kill me than have to watch you eat my babies. I think the question for the fan, and I would like for people to start thinking about this and give us your feedback as we will revisit this topic, is that kind of talk just metaphoric? Is it just hyping a fight? Nobody really means it. Or is because of, like what Michelle said, how violent and dangerous this sport is and how real it is? that you could die in the ring is saying something like that, suggesting that you want something like that to happen to your opponent, no matter what kind of bad blood is between you, is that crossing the line? Like, is that overstepping? See, I've, I always believed it was overstepping, but I'm asking the question of, like, what, what, what is it specifically that changed that made it okay then, but not okay now? Is it because social media is new now, they didn't have social media back then. Would everybody have been in uproar back then? I don't know. Or have we, as a society, started to read too much into things people say? Like, we know that a lot of times, like you said, metaphorically speaking, these men are not normal, average day men. Like, we're talking about they get hit in the head for a living. They decide to want to beat each other up. That's not a normal career field to go into. It's not. You have to have a few screws loose to be in boxing or to, or to be, be a boxer. boxer. So, so if you're, you're trying, trying to intimidate a guy that, that has, has a few screws loose and, and you're, you're trying, trying to get fight fans to believe 
that, that you have the guts and the gall and the brawn and the killer instinct. Hey, how many times, Michelle, have you asked a fighter, do you have that killer instinct when the moment comes? I've asked Manny Pacquiao that when it was in question. Do you have the, the, the grit and the, the, the determination to finish him? And this kind of thing. So I think even myself, I'm guilty of trying to drum up that kind of animosity or get at that kind of, like, that real close the show. I want to stop this guy at all costs. I'm going for the knockout no matter what kind of condition my fighter opponent is in kind of response. I'm trying to get at that. And we see that as a good attribute of a fighter. But there's a, a, a school of thought that a lot of older fighters, fighters who've been in the game a long time, will tell me. And they're like, you know, your job is to hurt the guy. Your job, maybe not to kill him, but when you're in there, you have to think that at all costs, I will do what is ever necessary to at least stop this guy for 10 seconds or make him quit. Whether or not they say it out loud, when they enter a ring, it's the hurt business, okay? Whether or not they say, I want to kill this guy, their only objective at that point is to hurt the guy to a point where he is lying on the canvas. That's the objective for them. <laughs> when David Hay holds up, when David Hay holds up Vladimir and Vitaly's heads, <laughs> severed with blood and guts dangling from their necks, he's holding both heads up like, this is what I'm gonna do to the Klitschko brothers. I remember that being reacted to really poorly. Like people were like, okay, they didn't, like, the Klitschko brothers, like, that's too far. They even considered calling the fight off. Like, you can't talk about us like this. This is not a blood sport in that way. You're talking about killing my brother. Like, F you. Uh, we're not having a fight. Obviously, they iron that out. As a reporter, are you offended by that? Or do you think that they're just trying to sell a fight? Because I think, I'm not saying it's okay. I'm just saying, I think they think, What's the best way I can get under my opponent's skin? What's the best, what, what, what can I do that could get me to get inside their head enough to where they're not thinking about the game plan. They're just trying to go in there and knock me out. And that's when I'm going to, you know, expose, whatever. I just think that they're just trying to get in under their skin. I... And conflicted. Because when I think of the David Hay incident, I found that hilarious. Like, I thought that was just, like, you know, a hyperbolic way to hype a fight. I thought it was funny. I, I didn't think that this guy had any intention of breaking into the Klitschko's homes and cutting their heads off. Obviously, it was so over the top, so extreme, that it was like, come on, guys, you can't be serious. At the same time, if I saw my brother's head severed in some fighter's hand and him trying to sell T-shirts behind that... I might be like, fuck you, I'm not, like, the fight's off. Also. Well, point, isn't that what they're trying to do? They're trying to get that reaction. That is the reaction they're looking for. Right. And But, Michelle, when Deontay Wilder said to me, I want a body on my record. Like, I'm like, well, do you really mean a body? Like, you don't really want to kill a guy. Like, no, I want a body on the record. I want to kill him in the ring. I'm not backing off of that. I was personally offended. Yeah. I was, like, I was mortified. And he, no matter what he says or how many times he doubles and triples and quadruples down on that, 
I still don't even believe him. I don't believe David Hay wants to cut off the, the Klitschko's heads. I don't believe Wilder wants to kill anybody in the ring, Fury, uh, Ortiz, or anybody else for that matter. But to, but to have articulated it and insist that that's actually what he wants, I think is crossing the line. So I'm, I got two questions. And I guess, like I said, we'll revisit for the fans. Is that kind of language crossing the line or are we making too much of it? And is the media hypocritical in trying to extract those kind of answers and reactions out of fighters and then criticize them for what they say? Kel Brook says that he's getting signals from Bob Arum and Crawford's team that the Terence Crawford fight is there to be made. I've spoken about this several times in the past. I think it's a good fight. I think that Kel Brook, despite the fact he's always been a big welterweight and he's been campaigning at 154 for his past couple bouts, correct me if I'm wrong, his last bout was definitely 154, but the one before that was at a catchweight. Was it also 154? And Eddie Hearn has also been saying that he wants Kell Brook to compete at 154, not 147. I just think the guys at 154 are too big for Kell Brook. Not just their physical size, but also, you know, some of them have got skills. I still think his best bet is down at 147. Now, I'm not saying he beats Terence Crawford at all, but I would give him more chance against Terence Crawford than let's say Charlo at 154. Because again, Crawford is more skilled than Charlo at 154, but Brooke has certain physical advantages over Crawford. He's a naturally bigger man. He's strong. He probably hits harder. He's fought plenty of times at welterweight. In terms of height and reach, there's probably not that much difference between Kel Brook and Terence Crawford. I suspect... Brook is probably going to be the physically stronger man, although some people will say that Kell Brook's going to be drained if he fights at 147 again. I suspect that this whole Kell Brook's drained and he's never been himself at 147 is, I don't want to say it's, uh, it's not true at all, but I think people put too much emphasis on it because Kell Brook himself has said in the past that he he feels okay when he gets in the ring. He does have strength. I think he's allowed people to put this idea that he's drained in his own mind so that they, he can then use it as a crutch when he loses to people like uh, Errol Spence, for example. Because if you listen to his post-fight interview following the Spence fight, he said he was okay in, in there. He said he made the weight okay and he could fight a welterweight again. It's the likes of Eddie Hearn and maybe people in his team telling him, oh no, it's the weight and this, that and the other. And when people are telling you this and you subconsciously and even consciously want a crutch anyway, you want a way to build your confidence back up, then you'll say, okay, oh, maybe I was drained. Maybe that's why. Oh yeah, maybe it wasn't the body shots that Errol Spence was hitting me with. Maybe it was the weight coming down from the Golovkin fight. Yeah, that's what it was. I never quite bought that. I think that Errol Spence beats any version of Carol, uh, Kel Brook. I mean, Errol Spence had to 
come to the UK, fight in a much colder climate than he's used to, against uh, or in front of a partisan crowd who were very hostile. It was his first world title fight. I mean, he had to go into the lion's den, Errol Spence. That wasn't him at 100% more than likely, but yet he still delivered the good. And he had a tough start in the fight. He was getting hit with good shots from Kell Brook. A lot of fighters in that situation, thousands of miles away from home, they would have caved in. Errol Spence didn't. Very mentally strong guy. I know he's turned out to be a bit of an idiot <laughs> as a human being, but in a boxing sense, very mentally tough guy. So, yeah, I never quite bought into the whole Kell Brook's weight or being weight drained is the reason for the Errol Spence defeat. And I still, right now, think that Kell Brook can get down to 147 and be competitive. I personally think so. I, I, I think if there's an issue for Kell Brook right now, it's lack of competitive rounds at a high level over the past few years. I think that's more of an issue than the weight. That's my personal view. And something I mentioned in a previous video is the fact that Kell Brook says he's now making the weight a lot better than he ever used to because he used to blow up in between fights. Now, I haven't seen Kell Brook since the current situation in the world that's going on at the moment because a lot of boxing gyms are closed and fighters, you know, maybe they are sitting on the sofa and eating pizza and stuff like that <laughs> rather than staying in condition. I hope Kell Brook has found some way to keep himself active and keep his weight down uh, because if he has, then... Terence Crawford fight, I think, is interesting. I would like to see Kell Brook take one fight prior to facing a Terence Crawford just to sharpen himself up a little bit more and then get in there with uh, Bud and see what he can do. Crawford would certainly be the favorite, but we've seen Crawford is vulnerable. He has been buzzed in several fights in his career, including one of his recent fights. Kell Brook, big guy, strong guy. Is Kell Brook the hardest puncher that Errol Spence, uh, excuse me, Terence Crawford would have faced in his career so far? Probably. So let's see what he can do with him. Um, I think if the PBC well awaits uh, freezing Terence Crawford out, then Kell Brook is the best alternative outside of PBC. Let me know what you guys think in the comment section below. It's happening, I'm out. According to Andy Ruiz's dad, his son is more than likely going to hire Eddie Reynoso as his new trainer. For those of you who don't know, Eddie Reynoso is the trainer of Canelo Alvarez. Now, to me, this seems like a more natural fit for Andy Ruiz than Teddy Atlas, which is a trainer they were looking at. Because Teddy Atlas is a very overbearing character. He's like a drill sergeant in the gym. And he makes no bones about that. Makes no secret of it. That's how he is. I don't know how well Andy Ruiz would get on with somebody like that. Maybe that's what Andy Ruiz needs. But maybe he's not ready to go there just yet. You know? Uh... Because Teddy Atlas isn't just the drill sergeant, but he's also somebody who likes to get inside the fighter's head. He likes to be a psych psychologist or psychiatrist. And some fighters don't like that. You know, some fighters 
yes, you have to try and understand their pathology and understand how to push their buttons, but maybe do it in a more subtle way. Because Teddy Atlas is like a bull in a china shop. He makes it all very obvious. He talks about psychology to you, talks about the way he thinks your mind is working and all this kind of business. He's very, very upfront about it. Whereas sometimes certain fighters respond better to a more subtle and nuanced approach. Maybe Eddie Reynoso can be that guy. Now, I think that if Andy Ruiz is going to be around Canelo Alvarez, that will be a tremendous uh, motivation, I think, for him. To see the way someone like Canelo lives. To see the way he trains. That will be a good thing for Andy Ruiz, I think. Because if you're around some somebody who's that professional, who's that uh, meticulous about their preparation, hopefully it will rub off on you. And I know that he has met or has at least spoken to Canelo Alvarez after he beat Anthony Joshua and became heavyweight champion. So there is already some kind of rapport there. And although I think that the Customado Teddy Atlas style could have helped Andy Ruiz a lot, I think Atlas really made an emphasis on Ruiz losing a lot of weight. I'm sure Reynoso would like to see Andy Ruiz in better shape as well, no doubt. But he might put more of an emphasis on developing his skills rather than just trying to get his weight down and getting in his head psychologically. Why are you so heavy? Is this a mental crutch? Is this, 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 that, and the other? Reynoso might just say, okay, I'm going to brush up your skills. We'll get you in shape. You'll be around Canelo. You'll see how he trains. You'll gain inspiration from that. And obviously, they're all Mexicans. And the commonality often helps, usually helps. So, yeah, interesting. Andy Ruiz could be hooking up with Eddie Reynoso, the trainer of Canelo Alvarez. It, it sounds like a more natural fit, that's what I'll say, than Teddy Atlas. It just sounds like a more natural fit. We'll see how it works, if indeed... Uh, Reynoso is selected. Let me know what you guys think in the comment section below. Is there anybody else out there who you think could be a good fit for Andy Ruiz? One person who I don't think would be a bad trainer for Ruiz is Freddie Roach. Roach has a history of training aggressive fighters. And if you're a guy who has a good chin, Freddie Roach can add to your, um, your uh, offensive arsenal. He can help you with that. But defensively, Freddie Roach has never been the, uh, the, the best when it comes to stuff like that. Can Andy Ruiz really improve that much defensively? That's the question. Because if he can't, if he's just going to be limited by his uh, you know, physical size and what have you in terms of how much head movement and how much he can bend at the waist, and that physical size isn't going to change, that much, irrespective of which trainer he's with, then I don't really see how his defense is going to change that much. Because what Andy Ruiz really lacks defensively is head movement. For a pressure fighter, you want a guy moving his head, like Mike Tyson, like uh, Joe Frazier. Yeah, you want him moving his head. Andy Ruiz has got such a large waist, he can't really bend that much at a waist to be able to move his head. <laughs> okay, so that's, that's one way that he's constrained. 
And um, unless a, a hell of a lot of weight comes off, then I don't really see him developing much of a, of any head movement at all. You know, yes, defensively, it's not just about moving your head. You can, of course, use your feet to some extent. Um, feints, uh, angles, coming in and, at certain angles where your opponent isn't able to hit you as clean or hit you at all. These are things which come into it as well, obviously. Timing and what have you. But again, he's a pressure fighter. So he can't really mess around on the outside too much. <laughs> Fiddling around with range and doing this, that and the other. He needs to get in and get in close quick. Get underneath his opponent's punches and then fire off his fast combinations. It's really not that complex in terms of what Andy Ruiz needs to do. Uh, from a boxing perspective, it doesn't need to be that deep. But yeah, as I say, he's constrained by his physical size. So we'll see what Eddie Reynoso, if that is his trainer, can do with him. Uh, let me know what you guys think in the comment section below. Is it a good choice of trainer? Would you have preferred to see him with Atlas, with Roach, with you know maybe somebody else? Let me know in the comment section below. It's happening I'm out. Naturally, all the heavyweight contenders and all contenders in all weight divisions, for that matter, are trying to hit the jackpot. They all want to face the cash cow in their division so they can make millions and millions and be set up for life, take care of their families and all that kind of stuff. But when it comes to numerous heavyweight contenders calling out Anthony Joshua right now, I don't just think it's all down to them wanting a paycheck. Because when Mike Tyson was world heavyweight champion, yes, there were guys, some guys calling him out. But there was a lot of fighters who were not rushing to get in the ring and have their world heavyweight title shot against Mike Tyson. Yeah, a lot of guys were biding their time and, you know, taking a long time before they challenged for the title because the world heavyweight champion was so formidable. There were some guys who felt that way in the 70s with George Foreman. And in fact, George Foreman himself felt that way about Joe Frazier. Joe, uh, George Foreman was fighting on Joe Frazier's undercards before he actually fought Frazier. And if you watch the documentary, Champions Are Forever, George Foreman said that he was afraid of Joe Frazier. And he told himself, I want to be heavyweight champion of the world but I wish that Joe Frazier would die first. <laughs> That's what George Foreman said in Champions Forever. Real good documentary. So, yeah, that's the kind of vibe you had during the Tyson era in the mid to late 80s. Where it was, you know, so Obviously, Tyson had opponents and what have you, but some guys were not too keen on getting in there with him anytime soon. In the case of, let's say, Tyrell Biggs, he was really rushed into the Tyson fight because of the fact that he had a drug problem and his handlers, the Duvers knew that if they didn't put him in with Tyson soon, somebody else was going to beat him. So he was rushed to his title shot and he took his beating and got his check. But with Anthony Joshua, the Andy Ruiz fight, the first fight in particular, but even the second fight has shown a vulnerability to AJ which has emboldened most of the heavyweight division now. 
Because prior to that Ruiz loss, I don't want to say that the heavyweight division were afraid of Anthony Joshua necessarily, but there was a lot more caution from the contenders when talking about AJ. But now you've got the likes of Frank Sanchez coming out saying he'll defeat Joshua. You've got Robert Hellenius of all people coming out saying he'll fight Joshua and he'll become the world heavyweight champion from Finland and all this kind of business. And of course, you've got Jarrell Miller piping up again saying, yeah, I would have put Anthony Joshua in a casket if we'd fall. So you expect contenders to call out the heavyweight champion, but notice how these guys are all calling out AJ or they're all talking smack about AJ. They're not talking that way about Tyson Fury, are they? <laughs> you know, not as aggressively, not as not with as much confidence anyway. It's mainly AJ who people are gunning for. And it's a big payday against Tyson Fury. Yeah? It's not like Tyson Fury's going to pay you chicken change if you face him. You still get a good payday there too. AJ might be the bigger payday still, but the gap is closing between the two of them. And I know AJ's got more belts, but it's the fact that people have seen AJ get knocked out. They saw him box negatively against Andy Ruiz, and they think he's weak now, he's wounded, I smell blood, now's the time to get him. Before he gets his confidence back, now's the time to get him. So it's going to be a very challenging phase of Anthony Joshua's career, because when you are looking dominant, opponents can be hesitant when they're in the ring with you. Because they haven't seen you get knocked out. They haven't seen any serious weaknesses. So they're not sure if those weaknesses are actually there. You know, it's one thing believing it, but another thing knowing it. So you get a certain amount of time and space from opponents when you haven't yet lost, when you've been knocking everybody out. But once they've seen you hit the canvas four times and get stopped in seven rounds and then be very defensive and wary in the rematch, they're thinking, okay, I could attack this guy. I can actually go for it against him because it's not just the fact that you know you can hurt him now. It's also that mentally you know there's going to be demons in his head. And that's something you believe you can exploit. So... It's going to be a real, real test in time for Anthony Joshua. He's going to have to earn his respect back. When these fighters are coming at him in the ring with all types of confidence, believing they can knock him out, he's going to have to put some people to sleep in order to win that respect back, get his own confidence back, obviously, but have that old situation whereby when he steps in the ring, opponents are not just rushing him anymore. You know, they're not looking at him with fire in their eyes. Instead, it's easier when you've got opponents who are a little more cautious and a little more respectful of what you're doing. Yeah? And he's going to have to put a hurting on some of these guys in order to get that. And he's also going to have to take some punishment at some stage in fights. And show that he can come back from taking punishment. Lennox Lewis had to go through that. After he got knocked out by Oliver McCall. The Ray Mercer fight is where he took punishment. And he came back. And that fight right there. 
won a lot of respect for Lennox Lewis among the American boxing fraternity, particularly among the fighters rather than the press who are still pretty negative about Lewis. But they did have to concede he's not quite as chinny, not quite as lily-livered as they thought he might be. You know, they're always making the English jokes about tea and crumpets and being with the Queen and all this kind of business. But after that Ray Mercer fight, where he really stood in there and hung tough with Mercer, who was a real tough guy in his day, uh, they thought, okay, maybe Lewis is tougher than we thought he was. Anthony Joshua is going to have to have a similar experience to that, I think, before the world accepts him as the heavyweight champion. So let me know what you guys think in the comment section below about all these fighters calling out AJ. Could any of them beat him? Uh, Jarrell Miller says that he would have put AJ in a casket. Most of you will remember, if you were subscribed to me at the time, I was one of the few people who was actually giving Jarrell Miller a good chance against AJ. You remember when that fight got signed? Most people were saying it's a terrible fight, Miller's a plodder, AJ will smash into pieces. That's what the vast majority of people were saying. I was saying, actually, I think Jarrell Miller's got a real good chance. I said, if he can take AJ's power, I think AJ's going to have a lot of problems against Jarrell Miller. I still feel that way. Um, but we don't know what Miller's going to be like without the juice, of course. So who knows? Anyway, let me know what you guys think in the comment section below about all the things I've talked about in this video. It's that man, I'm out.